0: Hello uh, no, and
1: no, no. Oh,
0: sorry. Oh, do <laughs> <laughs> video queue this time. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Community Serverless Podcast. Uh, today we're going to talk about IoT and serverless security. Uh, we have Ben Kehoe, uh, Mark. Can- uh, hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the IoT. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Community Serverless Podcast. Today we're going to talk about IoT and serverless security. We've got Mark Nunnikoven, Brian Liston, Ben Kehoe, and I'm Cassandra Perch. And let's just get the conversation started. Um, We'll start actually by introducing ourselves, uh, especially because not all of us were on the last IoT podcast. Um, I, for instance... Uh, surprisingly, missed that one. Uh, but I build light-up skateboards and serverless and IoT stuff for hobby all the time, and so I have a lot of experience there. Uh, Mark, why don't you introduce yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, my name is Mark Nenokovin. I'm the VP for Cloud Research at Trend Micro. Um, get to explore and research um, sort of where security is going in general, which of course uh, now you know means a lot of focus on IoT and a lot of focus on serverless because it's brand new and everyone's asking the same old questions.
0: All right. Um, yeah. So one of the things um, I've noticed recently, I just I just got an email about this the other day. Uh, Sneak just put out a ton, a suite of new tools for serverless and IoT security. So I don't know if you've seen these yet. Um, they're actually dedicated towards uh, those specific platforms as opposed to they're always about security. But they just released a new suite of tools for serverless and IoT, and it was really cool to see. The companies are starting to focus on the particular problems and recognize that are particular problems, even though they're the same old questions, we're tackling them in new ways. So like, what do y'all think about that? Like, what do, y- what do y'all think about the way companies are dealing with serverless and IoT security? It's
1: an interesting topic. I mean, it's, it's kind of where we ended off last episode, episode three, mm-hmm. um, where we were talking about the proclivity of devices are expanding to you know, home uses, you've got companies building out refrigerators that are internet connected and dishwashers and, uh, washers and, and dryers, vacuum cleaners. <laughs> yeah, vacuum cleaners.
3: We, uh, um, I, I think some similarities I see in IOT and serverless security is that so much of the space is driven by startups. And when you're a startup, the, uh, Everything's at risk, and so the um, when you're a startup, everything's at risk, and so the uh, the danger of a security breach is not necessarily a bigger business risk than anything else. Yeah. And so yeah, you figuring were out this last time. To, yeah, figuring out how to like convince startups that they that it is in their interest. Um, and educating consumers so that they make smart decisions that force these companies to uh, take better stances on security and privacy is, I think, an open question.
1: Yeah, because you've got these startups who are trying to move fast, right? They've got VC or they're trying to get VC and they may be running out and they're trying to get to market as quick as possible. So they might take shortcuts on security to get there. And sometimes they think, that's an okay business system when it's not, right, Mark?
2: Yeah, um, you know, and part of it comes down to how we've traditionally viewed security. Um, it, people see it as a separate action um, when realistically, um, you know, it's just building better. Yeah. If you're building things solid and better and building it in from the ground up, um, with an awareness of security concerns and privacy concerns, and you know, uh, just data management in general, um, you're going to have a much better pro- quality product in the end. So I think it aligns very much with moving fast and with um, building uh, uh, whatever you're building. So under those pressures, and you know, very understandable pressures, but because people look at um, you know, if we're building a startup, and we say, you know, we got to get out to market, we got to beat our competitors, we got the best little device, uh, whatever it's going to be, um, you know, we got to get out there now. Um, that's totally understandable. But saying, oh, we have this other activity that's called security that we have to do as well means, you know, exactly what Ben said. We're going to put it off because it's not going to make us money. It's something that may save us later on. Um, but that's really, you know, that's a potential probability down the road versus if I don't get this out and we don't go to beta now, you know, we won't get that next round or we won't hit our next trigger and won't get funding for the next six months. So yeah. I think it's a perception thing more than a reality. And unfortunately, though, that's, you know, if it's perception, it tends to be people's reality.
0: Yeah, I I definitely think it, it should be ingrained because uh, so when you think about it as an activity, it, this is where you get into trouble. So like uh, the the DNS. Uh, DDoS that happened uh, a few months back, and it w- it turned out to be those WS2812 chips that had been hijacked, right? So, like, patching that was impossible for most of the companies that had put out products on these w- WS2812 chips, and that's because they thought of security as an activity, and so they, they, had, they realized they had to do it after the fact, like, after they'd shipped their devices and users were already using them, and... So if they thought of it as an ingrained, like, part of the development process, I get the feeling that that DDoS attack wouldn't have been nearly as bad or would have been much more manageable. But instead, they seem to think of of it as an activity. And so we had that wide scale problem with these chips and the firmware on them. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think that was, like, from a security perspective, that was a really interesting attack. So we saw IoT devices set three world records in a row for denial of service volume um, just before Christmas, right? Like, it was bang, 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 three three major records for bandwidth thrown at things. Um, mm-hmm. But the really interesting thing about that was it was sort of, um, it had this weird externality into it in that if the, the attacker was taking over these devices that had, you know, basic secure, sec, you know, very poor security practice, so they had hard-coded usernames and passwords in those devices that, you know, users couldn't change or he didn't even have the concept that they needed to change these. Um, and the attackers took over these uh, devices to leverage the bandwidth they're, they're connected to, but didn't actually impact the performance of those devices. So if I'm a small business owner, you know, and this camera's protecting my shop, it's still doing its job. But in the meantime, it's being used to, to, you know, in a world record DDoS attack, uh, you know, in the background. And I never even know. Um, So there's no motivation even there. Whereas when we look at in an enterprise, there's a whole bunch of um, economic impacts and, you know, performance impacts that force people to patch. So even if they could patch how are you going to convince the guy at the corner store that they need to patch this stuff when they have no idea any of this thing went on, anything happened? It's really, it's a, you know, it needs to be built in. There's no other way to, you know, take a traditional way of like, Hey, you can patch it later. Let's just fix it before it gets out there. And yeah, half of them don't even know
1: their devices are even connected. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. One trick I saw a company do is they created a whole new feature so that they could ship out the security patch with the new feature to convince people to patch. Yeah. And I was like, that's a brilliant way to solve a problem you should have solved a year ago.
1: <laughs> That's an interesting like, approach. Actually,
0: I had do that. Was a brilliant solution to a problem they should have solved a year ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's totally an interesting interesting approach. Like, obviously, companies should be thinking about these types of scenarios when they're releasing products. Like, how am I going to address these underlying security issues if they crop up? But from a product perspective and a uh, marketing perspective releasing a new feature is one interesting way to convince people <laughs> to yeah. upgrade
0: to grab the security patch that comes right. along with it yeah exactly it was it was just a really it was it, to me it was a very novel concept of like all right that's one way to get your users to security patch is create a new feature that they only get when they update okay all right but yeah um that's just the tricky thing with with security, both on serverless and IoT, is is some of these attacks you just don't you don't think about the parameter they're going to use to attack you, and so you can't think to secure it. Like you know, it, it with the WS2812 chips, no one thought, hey, if I took a million of these chips, I would have the bandwidth to do some serious damage. Everyone's just thinking about building, you know, their light bulb or their toaster or their refrigerator or whatever it is. So, like, it's just interesting to me, like, how you have to think and you see more and more um, people who would get in trouble for what they did to particular pieces of hardware and or malware that they built uh, get hired by companies to then protect their. their for instance, uh, the, the the Google Docs scandal that happened uh, this was about a month ago where everybody yeah. got an invite to to Google Docs. And it turned out to be it turned out to be a Ph.D. Uh, thesis for someone in compu- who is getting a computer science Ph.D. And basically he wrote the thesis that said, like, if you made a convincing enough OAuth two screen, you could get all these people to give you access to their their Google accounts. And he accidentally launched it. And it turned out he completely proved his thesis. <laughs> no, he was—he was—he was, he was, he was extremely—he was extremely apologetic, and all the in the in the interview I read with him, he was extremely apologetic. Everybody's he,
1: apologetic he, after the fact.
0: Well, yeah, but like, <laughs> I, I seriously don't think he meant to launch it in the real world. But it ended up proving his thesis of like, yes, yeah, so if you make a convincing enough OAuth two screen, like the only reason I caught it was I saw the the URL in the or the extra email address in the. Yeah the bar, but like not everybody's going to check for that. And that OAuth2 screen, I looked at it through an article. It was really convincing. It looked just like a Google OAuth2 screen. So like even even the protocols we trust can be co-opted. And that's basically what this guy was proving. Yeah, and was it's, just like, it's,
1: it's the old, it's the age old adage of, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission sometimes.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's be, and, but for what I understand, he's probably going to get hired on to work security for a huge company now because he's proven that there's this huge hole here and so instead of being like okay we're never going to talk to you again because you made us look like fools these companies are turning around and going yeah okay we're going to hire you to make sure stuff like this doesn't happen anymore and I I found that was an interesting and smart approach because you have to think like that you have to think like someone who would be trying to take advantage of your system in order to truly protect your system yeah Yeah,
2: well yeah go ahead Ben
3: Oh, I was going to ask, so sort of the flip side of this is the ethics of this thing called Brickerbot, which I think is really, really fascinating, where someone is taking advantage of the Mirai botnet to brick the devices that are on it, um, such that those devices, although they become, you know, inoperable for the consumer who owns them, they also become unusable to DDoS other people. And I, it's it's a very sort of gray ethical area, because you're you're causing people's devices to cease to function in the way that they, because they were functioning, right? It wasn't impacting their core functionality for their users. Yeah. You're not like bricking somebody's uh, TV, so they, you know, that um, was just impairing their functionality. But their things were going out and doing things to other people. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think about how? Uh, Whether that's a a good
2: thing or a, um, I see Mark smiling. How does that play in? (laughs) Yes. Um, So, before we get into the good or bad of it. Um, It's important to note uh, for everybody's corporate legal counsel um, that that action in most um, countries is in fact illegal, the outcome or not. So most computer crime is behind as the law is when it comes to computer crime. The general gist is if you access a system unauthorized, whether that's with an unauthorized account or for an unintended use, Um, you are committing some sort of crime, typically a felony. So that out of the way. Um, We've seen (laughs) multiple examples of this where, um, you know, we saw it even with um, way, way back with a slammer worm, where somebody wrote a counter worm to go and patch everything behind. Um. Right. So take advantage of the same, and we saw similar echoes again with um, WannaCry uh, a couple of weeks ago. Right. So it yep. took advantage of uh, Eternal Blue, which is an SMB exploit in Windows. Um, and uh, there was someone who wrote uh, something that was very similar to to what Ben's suggesting here where it went back and it was closing the hole that the um, malware was using. So it was sort of, you know, goodware kind of going through. And it's a really interesting thing because we know the challenges in the PC desktop world of trying to get people to patch on time, which is essentially nobody patches on time. Um, In an IoT world, that's basically out of the question. So I think it's a a really interesting um, dilemma for sure, because here you're saying, you know, it's somebody who has the knowledge to be able to help the greater good you know ostensibly but by sacrificing the individual's use of their device
1: yeah and when it comes to IoT devices I mean often I mean as you pointed out right it's hard enough to get people to update their PCs whether they're on Windows whether they're on Mac whether they're updating Linux packages right like I mean it's a a very common use case raise your hand if
0: you hit install tomorrow when you see the the Mac update bar always (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) Uh, so then I guess the discussion comes into, you know, what would you guys think are best practices around IOT patching? Should they be forced? Should IOT devices, you know, call home once a day and automatically check, right? Like I'm wearing a smartwatch, um, it's a Garmin device and it randomly updates on its own via Bluetooth on the connected on my phone. But it does it random times of the day. Last night it did it while I'm sleeping, and it has a wonderful future that while it's updating, it vibrates every two seconds.
3: Again.
1: So if it does it in the middle of the night while you're sleeping, <laughs> it's a good way These to get woken up. up. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so, what, do you, what do you guys think about uh, IoT patching schedule? I mean, uh,
0: but- so, so first thing. Uh, I was actually talking about the 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 bricker bot with my friends, and we just dis- we determined after several hours of conversation that Batman is behind this, <laughs> in the sense that it's a vigilante who is having unintended consequences for, uh, you know, basically like collateral damage, but those are intended. The collateral damage is intended, so it's like Dark Knight era Batman, like does not care how vigilante. Side of the scale like they're driving fall, through,
1: knocking but down, they feel like they're the doing
0: bridges. the greater good. I, I bet you that that is who is behind this. They they are Batman, they are Batman Dark Knight era style person. They think they're doing things to the greater good and they don't care about the collateral damage. That's where we came to after several glasses of whiskey and several hours of discussion. Uh, <laughs> I think it's an apt. I think it's an apt comparison. Like this person, I, I think whoever built BurgerBot does not care. Like I think they view the users of these products as not, like they, they're acceptable collateral damage in order to stop the Mirai botnet. Now, whether I agree with them or not is an entirely different statement. But I, I think that that's what they think of the users. Anyway, uh, as for on uh, on not asking for patches, a. Um, while you should alert your users if you're patching something, it should not be a vibrating <laughs> wrist object at two in the morning. There's a, there's a fine balance between UI and alerting your users that your, your item is updating. But I think, I think unasked for updates, at least for security patches, it's it's a slippery slope um, to allowing all sorts of stuff to happen. But I, I think that if companies are responsible, that, that security patches should be Updated automatically like when the device phones home if there's a major security update but if it impairs the use of the device that is another issue especially because right now most of the things we think of iot are trivial we keep talking about like refrigerators and we keep talking about toasters but there are people out there hacking insulin pumps to be Mm -hmm. iot they're hacking blood sugar monitors to be iot so when that becomes an issue and like talking about updating and like okay so your garmin your garmin device stops and vibrates every 2 seconds right at 2 in the morning that's annoying but if like someone's insulin pump stops operating for 30 seconds to yeah. update while they're sleeping or pacemaker or pacemaker or whatever like that could be terrifying so like i guess it i guess i guess what i'm getting to is it should be a case by case basis on whether something updates without asking the user well um, I- but yeah
3: I I also think that, I mean, a lot of this comes down to what firmware update looks like, and the more that uh, we move into, you know, IoT platforms. So something like Greengrass may provide, you know, an update mechanism within it, right, which can provide those, uh, provide those best practices, similar to sort of, you know, um, how phones work, right? you know, iOS or Android is capable of updating the apps at times. Uh, That's true. And you're not using them. Mm-hmm. And it's capable of figuring out when that is. And if you want to use it during an update, it can dump that and just start up the app, right, that that um, a lot of these pieces can be built as part of not necessarily, I mean, ideally standards, but I think the more likely case is just sort of the the larger players in the space will be able to uh, have products or platforms that can help people build these. You know, this is how uh, AWS IoT works with, you know, enabling people to use certificates as the authentication mechanism, and providing a number of different mechanisms that fit various different manufacturing styles. You know, we um, at iRobot, we our certificates are generated at the factory, um, and we have our certificate authority registered with AWS IoT so that we never need to send those certificates to AWS before it, uh, before they contact it. On the other hand, if you don't have all of that logistical uh, pieces in place and you're just trying to, you know, you're a hacker or you're just a small business, you can have AWS provision certificates and send them to you, Yeah, right? But either way, you have these options to to sort of secure that channel
0: and that's really where the benefit between the relationship between serverless and IoT really starts to come into play. If you've got a device, an IoT device that is on a serverless architecture, all you're really doing on the IoT device is collecting and sending data. And then the serverless aspect handles the rest of it. And so when you're talking about like auto-updates or you're talking about security patching, it's much easier to security patch a serverless function that's running in AWS. It's much easier to update a <laughs> serverless function running in AWS. Than it is mm-hmm. to update the firmware on someone's device, yeah. whether you ask them to or not. Yeah, you and really. So touch- I think we're kind of getting into the benefits, especially when we're talking about AWS Greengrass, um, these platforms that are kind of making it easier to think about security as part of your development, because AWS does do that. Like when you're developing a Lambda function, you're already using AWS IAM. So you're already thinking about security as an intertwined part of development. Yeah. So I think as more providers start to focus on IoT, as more serverless providers start to focus on how they interface with IoT, some of these security holes will start to be covered well, you, by the fact that we've, get, that we've got these providers thinking about it.
1: You've, you've kind of hit on the fact that there's kind of two classes of IoT devices, right? Mm-hmm. You've got mm-hmm. IoT devices that are collecting and sending data. And then you've got IoT devices like smart bulbs and, um, you know, security cameras that are Mm -hmm. constantly internet connected. And they might have a publicly addressable IP address um, or um, a hole punched through a firewall, right? So really, I see Mark laughing here. I think he's got some, he's got some topics here.
2: Mark? I said, I would think I'd qualify that far more under a cringe than a laugh. Um, but yeah, I think it I think it's all comes back to building. So I'm reminded of you know last year's reinvent, Ben gave a great talk on um, architectures behind the scenes, um you know that he's built up. And there was a huge amount of security content in there, but it wasn't a security talk. You know it was a this is how you build well. Um, you know, so the light bulb example you had mentioned, Brian. There was one light bulb uh, that will rena- remain nameless um, that we had uh, encountered. That was a completely open Wi-Fi router, and I, I just, yeah, exactly. Everyone on the call is just, you know, head down, face palm, what the hell. And I'm sure it was an expedient solution to the design problem the developer was looking at at the time. But why would you ever? create that right and it was a uh, very myopic solution saying like hey you know we just need to be able to connect from light bulb to light bulb to create a collection of light bulbs so that you can control the lights in the meantime you've literally given access to that entire network that it's connected to to anything that connects to it and you know very easy to jump on and absorb those uh, sort of abuse those resources and that happens time and time again it's this sort of this concept of you know securities you can apply it later yeah. Or, you know, it's a separate activity. And really, you know, it just keeps coming back to just build something strong and from the get go, and you're way better off. What are your that,
0: that's part your... what infuriates me about a lot of IoT designs that I see come out is there are a lot of communications protocols already in place that help with the security issue, UPNP being one that's not security strong, but more security strong than creating a Wi-Fi router light bulb, uh, XMPP, things like that, like all these protocols that exist and people are just ignoring them because they're either too hard or or why would we bother? I I, 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 I get this feeling from other IoT developers where they just kind of look, they get snide about existing communications <laughs> protocols. And it's like, yeah. why? You they, know, it's, they were developed with security in mind why you know what's interesting
1: like, is like mark you touched on the fact that you know a light bulb provider has uh, a wireless router essentially in them and it, it and ben's talk about not necessarily security but just designing well right from the ground up and it's it's interesting when you look at some of the devices out there. Like my whole house, I have smart bulbs, and they're of a couple different brands. Some use Zigbee, some use Z-Wave, some use Wi-Fi. And commonly, I see that the companies that release these bulbs that use Wi-Fi um, often the initial setup stage is to connect over Wi-Fi to the light bulb, and then have the light bulb then connect to your Wi-Fi network and not have an open Wi-Fi network. Uh and I think that just circles back to, you know, what you were talking about Ben's talk about designing properly and designing well from the ground up and making sure that when you're building a device or you're building a service that you're are thinking about all these implement all, all these implications.
0: I, I don't think that's thinking about all those implications though, because my problem with that design is that means that at any time that light bulb has the ability to have an unsecured Wi-Fi network being broadcasted from it? Yeah, and just I meant because they, they turn need to it think off
1: about the implications. I didn't say that right. like they were yeah. thinking. Yeah.
0: Oh, right. Fair enough. Because yeah, because even though it, it turns off when you connect it to your home Wi-Fi, <laughs> correct. That doesn't mean someone who remotely access it can't exactly. turn it back on. A
1: bad firmware patch. Could, yeah. For
0: bad firmware all and patch purposes, malicious use. Yeah, like that kind of thing. It's
1: a bridge yeah. between a public Wi-Fi router and my network. Exactly. I never like, know.
3: So I'd yeah. push back a little bit on that. Like, the ability, like, having the code on board that allows um, that allows for um, a Wi-Fi, like, access point, right? As opposed to, which is different from a router. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Um, is... Having that code on board at the same time as it can connect is not necessarily like increasing the risk of a firmware patch exposing that. Because the radio can't be used for both at the same time. Uh, now, like uh, you don't want the ability right, for it to be on the network at the same time as it's providing the ability to connect to it directly. right? Yeah. But I think. I think the uh, it's not quite as bad as you're you're implying there. Mm-hmm.
0: The, the yeah. only thing I'm worried about there is uh, so we're talking about like you'd have to be able to physically access them oh, you'd have to be able to actually phys- physically access the network in order to mess with these devices and that's that that part it that does kind of lock it down. And it does make it seem less apocalyptic than than I was originally implying. But my problem is so many businesses have unsecured Wi-Fi networks that they put these smart devices on. Yes. And so physical access isn't as hard as it would seem. Not
1: even businesses, just consumers. Like a lot of people. I'm actually very
0: surprised by this fact. I'm seeing more and more private residents Wi-Fi networks have pretty strong passwords. Um, not that I've probed <laughs> in any illegal manner, but my my neighborhood, for instance, when I moved in a little over a year ago, there were four unprotected Wi-Fi networks out of like the seven available. Right now, there's none, and I didn't tell them to do that. I'm not that kind of neighbor. I don't know them well enough to go be like, "Hey, you should secure your Wi-Fi." Um, so, I, I but businesses, on the other hand, I feel have gotten worse. Um, I was at a a local coffee shop that we will remain nameless in the Austin area and I was using a net scanner to find my Raspberry Pi because I was running a headless and I found their cash register system unsecured on their guest Wi-Fi and so I walked up to the barista and I was like hey so anybody who walks in here and logs into your guest Wi-Fi can see your cash register. And their reasoning was, well, it was too hard to log the cash registers into the employee Wi-Fi, which is secure, so we logged into the guest Wi-Fi. And I'm like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, I'm saying I don't care how hard it is to get it on your employee, like locked Wi-Fi. So like, there's this mix of of in, of informing consumers as to how to secure their own networks and physical access to devices. Like, sure, at
3: the same time, yeah. but it's not you,
0: as apocalyptic as I originally. Yeah, yeah. I'll, you, I'll I'll definitely concede that point. It was definitely not as apocalyptic to have a light bulb that can broadcast an open network, then that can connect they, they can then connect to a private network. That's definitely you, not as apocalyptic as yeah, I originally had stated it.
3: You, you want to make sure that the that when it's in that access point mode, right, that requires actual literal physical access mm-hmm. um, to the device. And that whatever communication you have over that AP, you know, is time limited, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think then once you're on the network, mm-hmm. um, as much as consumer grade Wi-Fi practices have probably, you know, improved, you still have to consider the network that you're on a hostile environment mm-hmm. because um, there may be other. IOT devices that are compromised on that network, yep. right? Just because someone can't get in there doesn't mean someone's not already inside. And then you know, it's all—it's always defense in depth, right? Not only do you want mutual authentication for the channel, anything delivered over it, like a firmware update, you want it to be signed, um, so that you can be sure. You want to be using, you know, secure boot, um, so that you can, you know, burn in keys at the factory, so that literally nothing that doesn't come from you can get on it. Yeah. And so I think you know once you start building in a lot of those layers, um, the the provisioning part is not actually the um, the biggest danger. It's more the long term um, maintainability. It's a, yeah,
1: this is actually a great great turning point. We've we've talked a lot about consumer security <laughs> more so than individual uh, IoT devices. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, Mark and Ben, um, what would be some feedback that you would give the community today? I'm a new person thinking about, or I'm currently working at a company or starting a company where I'm building an IOT device. What are things that I should be thinking about from day zero, not even day one?
3: I mean, I think, yeah, uh, signatures and identities. Right, cryptographic keys, um, how you're getting them onto the device, how you're um, communicating that identity that you've built to your cloud provider, um, and then doing that authentication, how you're delivering these updates. Uh, I think those are all pieces that need to be built in from the beginning, rather than added on later.
2: Mark, did we lose you? No, nope, no, no, I'm here. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, yeah. uh, so I think Ben, you know, great points there. Um, big, big takeaway is, you know, don't write it yourself. Um, that's something we hit again and again in insecurity, especially around cryptography. Um, I think it applies in general to IoT platforms at this point. So I was participating in a research study about a year and a half ago, uh, looking at IoT platforms, and um, lo and behold, people who wrote their own, as opposed to leveraging, um, you know, a foundation from a cloud provider, um, made a lot of really basic mistakes, like you know, stuff that had patches available for a year and didn't bother putting it out. Um, wrong cryptographic choices because they were, you know, thought they knew better than uh, the multitudes of security knowledge that's out there. Um, there are great resources available today. So um, not just from a technology perspective of leveraging uh, something like AWS IoT um, you know, for cryptography, leveraging some open source projects that are very popular, um, great communities around them. But also, um, you know, and Cassandra touched on this a little bit, and I think we just in general, we've been talking about it. Um, there's a lot of accepted patterns to accomplish various tasks. Um, and, you know, if it's not working for you, you've probably selected the wrong pattern the odds of you coming up with something new and saying, hey, this is an amazing thing that nobody's ever thought of. As much as I'd love for all of us to have those ideas like you know, five, six times a week, um, realistically, if you come out with something, then go, nobody's ever thought of this as the best way ever to do something well and securely. (laughs) You wanna probably float that idea a little publicly to get some feedback on it first. Because if it is one of those ideas, that's amazing. Share it with everybody so everyone else can take advantage. But odds are you've made a fundamental mistake or not seen something. And one thing that Ben called out that I think is really important is that, you know, everything is hostile. So we saw this in an industrial IoT research study we had done looking at um, robot arms, you know, so the big stuff on factories that pick up the car chassis and stuff. Yeah. Um, And not bad um, (laughs) as far as security overall. They were all designed with the concept of keeping the humans around them safe. Right, which totally makes sense. You don't want this, you know, one-tum arm killing the person next to it in the factory. Um, I, you know, no one's going to debate that. That's great. Um, however, as these things evolved over the last 15 years, um, they were built with the idea that they were isolated and that they just, you know, you had to interact with it physically yet they started to do remote you know pendant control and then it was you know completely remote over the internet control and all of a sudden these things that were designed to be isolated are connected not just to other things in that factory line but also in uh, to the corporate network and then unfortunately directly out to the internet we found a bunch of them that were connected directly to the internet and there's no scenario where that should ever be true but if you know you're taking bens advice and realize that you know everything's you're just in a hostile environment defend appropriately um it wouldn't be nearly the issue that it is
3: yeah yeah that's good advice
0: yeah
3: to uh to link this back to serverless um
0: Mm -hmm.
3: an example that i like to to talk about is how um you know aws api gateway uh released this lambda proxy integration which will just take the the entirety of sort of the web request and pass it entirely over into your Lambda so that you can use all the you know web frameworks you're used to. Um, and that makes development a lot simpler, but I think a lot of people don't consider the security implications that come along with it, which is that your exposure service is now much bigger. Right, and I think uh, some of the, the aspects that we've talked about in uh, as relates to IoT, also relate to serverless in the same way of relying on, say, provider solutions when when they're available, right? If you're filtering out more traffic that is not compliant with what you're expecting in API Gateway, your Lambda is going to uh, not have as many security risks happening on that side, right? And the amount of sneak analysis that needs to be done, right? that example he gave at serverless conf where he wrote a 19 line function that pulled in 190,000 lines of code through dependencies <laughs> um, Whoops. yeah I, well but I mean that's that's exactly the, the power of the community that we have today, right that you mm-hmm. don't need to write 190,000 lines of your own code just to do something simple. you can build you know you can stand on the shoulders of giants to do this but it means that you need to be checking all the way down to make sure that that you know everything you're standing on is is strong and secure
2: yeah I think for me, that that brings up one of my biggest pet peeves um, in sort of how people view security. And a lot of the time, if you talk, especially in big companies, you know, you talk to them, what's security's role? And they'll say, well, it's to stop bad guys from getting in and, you know, stealing our data and things like that. And you're like, well, okay, that's really, you know, narrow definition. Um, But I think, you know, from a development perspective, there's there's a blind side uh, or a blind spot as well. And they both really come together is that, you know, if you're building something, the role of you as a developer, as a builder, is to make sure that that, um, you know, serverless backend or that IoT device or whatever you're building, your job is to make sure that it does what you want it to do and only what you want it to do. And it's that second part That's that everybody seems to forget, right? Yeah, Because you go, yeah, great. Okay, you know, my light bulb turns on when I hit this button. <laughs> But, you know, if I throw it an entire web packet that contains a malicious payload underneath and code to execute, you know, I can also make it do that. Yeah, but it turns on when you hit the button. Um, You know, and that's the problem is that you need to complete that sentence. And it's the same for the security folks. Their job is not to keep bad guys out. It's to make sure that everybody who's building something can build something that does what they want it to and only that.
0: Yeah. That that hits on an interesting point. So you mentioned uh, companies, IoT companies especially wanting to come up with these great ideas that no one's ever come up with before and it works for them and i think part of that is um so i was just reading uh hardware hacking by andrew bunny huang um was, he was actually talking about really interesting stuff involving the open source movement as it applies to software and hardware and i see this more as as we start to see more hybrid developers people who either started in a software or a hardware background and then they ended up in iot where they have to write software and hardware code and it kind of com- becomes this gradient people like me um that's i feel where some of the in the software world writing it yourself is silly and i I think we've gotten to that point in the software world um there's still a few people who love to write things themselves and rewrite the wheel and that's why we have 80 different node web frameworks and i get it but (laughs) but we've got this general consensus that you know don't reinvent the wheel but because of the way patents and open source and all this stuff have kind of congealed in hardware in a different light, IoT and firmware writers haven't quite gotten to that same assumption yet. When you're an IoT firmware writer, you're not, your first instinct isn't to go to GitHub and see what other IoT firmware writers have done on their devices or see what frameworks they're using because it's not quite in that culture yet to be open source with your code. There's still a very competitive, very secretive kind of lockdown for, for people who are only in the firmware space, only in the hardware space and not as in the software space. For instance, uh, my father's an electrical engineer, so he, he's only in the hardware space. He writes code, but I showed him GitHub for the first time six months ago. Because that's not a thing that occurred to him as a firmware writer, because his idea of writing code is, I'm writing code for my company, and if any of this code gets out, I'm in so much trouble, and I can't rely on anyone else releasing their code. And so I think that's part of it. I think that's part of where the whole write your write your own, uh, thing b- is such a problem in the firmware space is because of the way open source has impacted hardware as compared to how it's impacted software, especially with the idea of patents coming in. And anyway, that's a really interesting read, um, The Hardware Hacker. Really good book if you if you want to learn more about, about that. And then um, to tune it back into serverless, I think that's, I think the the serverless and IoT meld is starting to create more of these hybrid developers and starting to bring more of that open source view back into the firmware, firmware side of things. Because firmware engineers are having to deal with Lambda functions. Firmware engineers are having to deal with, how do I interact with this Lambda function? And so I think, luckily, it opens a, a communication between these two types of developers and starts to kind of share ideas, for better or for worse, hopefully for better. Um, anyway, just kind of wanted to comment on that because, like, I, I noticed the disparate between hardware people wanting to invent, the, reinvent the wheel all the time, and software people who are like, no, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I'm going to npm search that, <laughs> <So. clears throat> or yarn search that, whatever yeah. you want. <laughs>
2: CPAN forever.
1: <laughs> oh man
2: don't let's not let's not go down that rabbit hole (laughs) yeah you can't you can't see the gray hairs on the podcast so now developing as we speak
0: package managers yeah Yeah. i
1: think that's a a whole nother let's not that's a whole nother like four episodes probably just in package management security
2: like there and and yeah, I think that's a great point, Brian, because it's not I, I think the both extremes are not good. You need to realize, you know, um, so Ben's example, pulling in, you know, all those dependencies with a couple lines of code. Um, you you, you want to leverage other uh, work where possible, but you realize that that is now part of your work. Yes. Um, you know, and it comes down to that fundamental. It's the shared responsibility model in a microcosm, right, is that if I'm building on somebody else's work as much as I hope that they've done a good job, Um, You know, and this may be just tinfoil hat, Mark speaking. Um, I want to make damn sure they've done that good job. So I'm going to take efforts to verify that. And the challenge you get when you've got dependencies and that kind of code is, Okay, now I've updated and maybe there are five or six updates ahead of me. Well, now I have to dig in that and I have to manage that relationship and I have to ensure that, you know, hey, are those five or six updates security related? Or maybe they're just functionality related or maybe, you know, it's the inevitable refactor that we all have to deal with. Um, But those dependencies are now part of your thing and you're responsible for them as well.
1: Well, at the end Uh, of the day, it's, it's, uh, it's really no different than the old way of thinking, well, if the infrastructure changes, I need to be aware of it. It's just extrapolating that out to, okay, I'm now also relying on somebody else's software because previously I was relying on somebody else's just infrastructure, whether this is cloud, whether this is colo, whether this is whatever. Uh, You needed to be aware and make sure that your application physical and network security was present. Now you also need to be aware of your software. Uh, security, But I think that's a topic that we can cover in probably four to ten episodes, but we probably will try not to do that. Uh, I don't want to dive, diverge this conversation anymore. Is there any other uh, specific topics anybody wanted to hit on regarding IoT security?
3: I don't think I have anything.
0: Oh, I think I'm good.
1: Any, mark, any, like night. any
3: last oh, uh, sage yeah. words I of wisdom, analogy. Mark?
0: So when you mentioned tinfoil hat, Mark, uh, I have a tinfoil hat cast. And you know the little shoulder angel and shoulder devil you used to have? So uh, you, I have open source cast and tinfoil hat cast. And when I'm developing something, like they both pop up. And tinfoil hat cast is like, well, yeah, but then you're relying on their code to work and you're relying on no security issues on their end. And we should just never trust anyone's code ever. And then you've got open source cast is like, no, it's fine. It's got 8,000 stars on GitHub. They couldn't have that big of a security hole. So instead of shoulder angel and shoulder devil, I have shoulder tinfoil hat and shoulder open source like cast arguing awesome. constantly. Nice.
2: Nice. Yeah, I think for me the the biggest thing and it sort of encapsulates everything we've talked about today is that nowhere is it more apparent than with IoT and serverless backends that you need to look at this holistically. You can't do what we tend to do in an enterprise where we go, okay, I have a, you know, this one server and it's protected, um or, you know, this one area. You need to look soup to nuts. It's systems level thinking, um, you know, Ben, gave some great examples of it. And I encourage you to check out his talk from reInvent last year um, it was a 400 level talk with uh, Wally from AWS, fantastic talk in that it showed start to finish that thinking that process of going, okay, yes, I have this device, whatever that device does. But this device is the start, you know, it's the tip of the spear. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens in the back end in the lifecycle of that device. And if you're not looking at all of it. Um, there's going to be issues because we see that time and time again in the security world where uh, you know people will find an easy way in. So Cass's example about the you know faking out an OAuth request you know for the uh, non-existent Google Defender that everyone's like, oh, I want that. That sounds great. Uh, doesn't exist. Just a research project. But a yeah. ton of people clicked on it. Um, and you know that's the weak in. You can have the best systems in the world, and if there's one weakness, um, things can get in. And you're never going to make them perfect. But if you don't think about them as a whole system, um, you're going to be really wide open.
3: Yep. and and I think that there are tools out there and and uh, you know best practices that can allow you to secure you know Raspberry Pi that you're setting up for yourself in your house on your own network, all the way to you know scaling to selling millions of devices.
1: Yeah, all great points. Cass, do you have any final sage no, words I'm of wisdoms? <laughs>
0: Do I ever have any of
1: those?
0: <laughs> I think I just have weird analogies and weird anecdotes, but no, I, I don't, I don't think I have anything else.
1: <laughs> cool. Uh, well, I guess on that note, we could probably wrap up this episode. Uh, one thing to note for everybody, we do have serverless podcast, laptop stickers in coming. So I will be mailing a bunch out to all of the hosts that have been participating so far. So if you ever see one of them at a conference, See if they've got a sticker on them. And on that note, thanks uh, for taking the time today to talk about IoT and security.
0: Thank you for wrangling thank all you. of us together.
2: Yeah, thank you.